Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 25th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Welcome back, Anteaters. While you've been away, we've been keeping track of a few things, uh, like the countdown, 43 days until the midterm elections. You can tell we're getting close, as the White House serves ample portions of red meat, either to placate the base or distract opponents. Looking like time-release policies. Just watch. More coming. Today's show, Jeffrey Clayton, Executive Director of the American Bail Coalition, will offer analysis of how California versus other states is doing with the Senate Bill 10, the law ending money bail in California. The second guest will be Connor Evers, water policy whisperer of Southern California with tools for some of the out-of-box thinking with water solutions. Now or never, it's kind of a creeping sensation. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Jeffrey Clayton, Executive Director of the American Bail Coalition, here to talk today about the recently passed California law, SB 10, dealing with the state's bail bond system, the reform of which continues to get considerable attention on the national level. Prior to joining the American Bail Coalition as policy director in May 2015, Jeff Clayton's been involved in public policy and government relations for 15 years and as a licensed attorney for the past 12 years. Most recently, he was the general counsel for the Professional Bail Agents of Colorado, in addition to serving other clients in legal, legislative, and policy matters. Jeff represented the Colorado State Courts and Probation Department, the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, and the United States Secretary of Transportation. He is also a prior Presidential Management Fellow and finalist for the U.S. Supreme Court Fellows Program. Jeff completed his Bachelor's of Arts from Baylor University, his Master's in Science and Public Policy from the University of Rochester, New York, and his law degree from the Sturm College of Law, University of Denver. He comes to us today from Denver. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jeff Clayton. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you on. Now, just before we begin pull into this whole Senate Bill 10, give us, would you, a background about the American Bail Coalition to offer listeners some context about your advocacy and um, who's part of this coalition. Absolutely. The American Bail Coalition is a trade association of surety insurers. In other words, these are the guys that back the bail bondsmen that bail uh, people out of jail. So there is a financial incentive in that respect. The coalition, however, and the reason that I agreed to do the job, uh, works to fundamentally protect the right to bail which can include the right to a bail bondsman, but also in general, the right to bail and the right to uh, being released prior to trial is really what I focus on in my role as, as executive director. And we'll get into some social justice issues as we peel back what's going on with the law, but I, I wanted to have everybody understand a little bit where you're coming from there. With the Senate Bill 10, 
eliminating cash bail in California, which was signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown last month, August 28th, people keeping track. So lay out, would you, what the current policy with bails is in California, how it works, how it affects a particular socioeconomic groups. Sure. I mean, the right to bail in California is in Article 12 of the state constitution. It's obviously a federally guaranteed right to bail. The right to bail in California has always been the right to post some version of security, whether it would be cash, property, or, you know, after there were licensed bail bondsmen uh, much later in California's history, to allow that to serve as security to uh, get your way out of jail. So the idea that it's sort of a money-based system is somewhat correct. Although I point out that under the current system, the vast, vast majority of folks who are involved in the criminal justice system are released on their own recognizance in California and around the country. And so while I think the current system is does use monetary bail, um, it's not the only form of release. I will say in California, however, and I think everybody on all sides of the debate agreed that the bail schedules in, Ca- in California were just too high. Uh, for various reasons over the years, they've been increased. The entire system was out of whack, and you know, obviously, there were different, you know, solutions proposed to that. Of course, ours was to lower the um, to lower the schedules and to make more sense of the system. But anyway, that's kind of how the uh, current view of what the system looks like today. But and you said most are released, but it really there is an uneven distribution of socioeconomic groups that are affected by uh, who who gets to be released, who has to post the bail. There can be. I would say that this idea that there's the rich person running around the criminal justice system and then there's the indigent person, it's generally not the case. I think the real advantage doesn't come when you're, you know, in the 75% bracket income. It comes when you're at the the top, top bracket income because no bail could serve to ever detain you. For the average American, um, you know, bail is important. And after you've committed three felonies, for the average American, you're probably not getting out because your friends and family no longer believe in you and are not going to post your bail. So, But I do, I do agree with you that it does, and particularly when the bail schedules are so high, the population that it hits the most are socially disadvantaged people. Right. And, and if they're not able to post the bail, then there's, it's, you know, we have their societal costs in terms of that if that's the breadwinner, that pulls that breadwinner out of an earning capability and the whole household is then not supported and so there's a sort of a cycle there's a social cost and there's a household cost for posting a bail beyond their affordable reach sure there can be but for most people who are employed or have a job in california bail is within reach because it's the cheapest place to get bail per dollar but i would agree with you that we agree that having too many people incarcerated pending trial is a problem in California, is a problem nationally. And it's not just inability to post money bills. It's, you know, uh, other holds uh, that people are on because they have two case, two low-level cases, and so they can't be released. So there's all kinds of issues like that, and we agree that incarceration is not the answer. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll keep coming back to that. So SB 10 and uh, my uh, previous uh, interviewee was talking about, she calls it, setback 10, that it would require each county in California to establish a pre-trial services agency to gather information about newly, and I don't know where that fits in with the three strikes and all that, but with newly arrested persons and conduct pre-trial risk assessments. Break down what's going on with 
that system with a pretrial risk assessment, how it's uh, set up, sure. and some of the, I mean, there's there's a good deal of criticism about what's involved in that. Well, the easiest way to understand this is the original Senate Bill 10 proposed to release more people from jail without having to post bond, right? And the way to do that would be they'd be either supervised or we would identify some people that we thought, you know, these pro- people probably aren't low, are low risk, even though we may think they're high risk. So we're going to release some more people. Under the new version of Senate Bill 10, the one that became law, the alternative is to say if you can't post bail and there's no bail involved, that we're just going to lock people up, one, based on you know what the risk assessment says, and then two, for an entire population that's going to be large in the middle, we're going to put them on state supervision like New Jersey, who is now supervising 87% of all criminal defendants. So what ended up happening was a trading of trammeling of liberties, basically, to say that, okay, you know, we don't want these people to be, all these people to be in jail, but we're going to trammel the liberties of all the ones that we let out. And rather than having a constitutional right to bail, we're just going to use these uh, risk assessments to decide who doesn't get bail. And what does a risk assessment do? It's based on typically a handful up to 15 different factors, could be demographic factors that have been shown to correlate with disadvantaged populations, like whether you own or rent a home is one factor on many risk assessments, things like that. Uh, All prior crimes, prior convictions, all that sort of thing. Uh, And the one that that really captures my imagination and that of a member of the Black Caucus that I talked to is age at first arrest. Because literally one of the staffers was arrested for joyriding on his mom's moped at age 12, and he will forever be high risk, and he just can't get over that, and neither can I. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how this system will be set up, is you're either low, medium, or high. If you're low, you go home. If you're medium, you get the tentacles of the state. And if you're high, you're locked up with no bail, period. So it's not even a matter there's a financial part. And and when you were talking about the probation-like conditions, I just want to say, I'm not sure if this is ProPublica or what other sources, but the, those conditions for institutionalizing without a, a, a bail being posted in, under SB 10 would be mandatory drug testing, electronic surveillance, curfews, and reporting cards. They might as well be detained. Right. And the, James Kilgore, who famously you know, wrote the book on mass incarceration, calls the new movement mass incarceration, electronic incarceration. Mm-hmm. And so all we're doing is we're trading one form of incarceration for another. And that's why we argue that bail is important, right? Because, you know, for the average person who can get bail, you'd rather do that than have the very government that's prosecuting you supervising you. I mean, it's just it doesn't civil liberties wise make any sense. Um, but that's what's happened, unfortunately. Well, there's a third choice, though, in all of this is no posting any bail and releasing them that there there appears in solid research that a person charged with a crime, not convicted, charged with a crime, that they are pretty good at making their court appearances. Yeah, well, the reality is most low-level misdemeanor cases, almost all of them in California, are released right now anyway. And so the question is, under the new bill, is that really going to expand the people that are going to get recognizance bonds? And the answer is absolutely not, because... You know, the, the, the number of people out there, they're just not there to give the recognizance bonds. Most most people are going to get ensnared in either supervision or detention under the new system. The ones that And the ones that aren't, the ones that post bail today and get out will also be ensnared uh, yeah. in, in that as well. Well, let's talk about what was going on in the mix of, of the politicking here. The lineup of all the interests 
for and against. It's really quite complicated that um, current and future detainees of uh, various incomes, there, there were probation. T talk about all of the interests that were bargaining for what kind of law was going to come because it did change a great deal over the, the term of this legislative session. Yeah, I mean, and it changed 180 degrees in about a week, but it started out, I think, with, you know, you sort of had the law enforcement groups, district attorneys, chiefs of police, you know, a lot of the police union groups, obviously the bail industry was in opposition just because we thought it was too sweeping. You, know, you had victims groups on both sides. You primarily had um, social justice groups, ACLU, et cetera, pushing for bail reform. Uh, and at the end, the coalition on the other side, because of the expansion of detention and supervision, fell apart. And so, you know, I was speaking with the San Francisco Public Defender during this, which, you know, we were on polar opposites before. Wow. And, you know, 50 civil rights groups pivoted their position to be against. And then, of course, I think some of the law enforcement groups actually ended up supporting it because of the sweeping power that it would give prosecutors and judges uh, to detain more people and to detain the people they want to detain. Well, I just, uh, and so mm -hmm. that's, that was what really changed everything was put the new version out with like two weeks to go. Wow. Oof. Those are those sausages. <laughs> Watching yeah, laws and sausage. Yeah. That was one heck of a dog. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Jeffrey Clayton, Executive Director of the American Bail Coalition, here talking about the recently passed California law Senate Bill 10, dealing with the state's bail bond system. So there are a couple of sort of dynamics involved at this point where the, I mean, we've talked about the risk assessment and out uh, the algorithms with biases and that kind of a thing, but so what is the, uh, this all has to be developed and the, the pretrial agencies, all this has to be codified it's at least a 13-month kind of a period of administering, codifying this law. But the American Bail Coalition has a ballot measure to reverse this. So talk about this time frame where SB 10 is built into to become law and what a reversal might look like if, with a qualifying petition drive. You bet. So the law is scheduled to take effect October of 2019. You know, it's my understanding that not much funding has yet been allocated to it, so there'll have to be a budget conversation during the next administration. My prediction would be that it gets kicked out for some time. Uh, New Jersey, when it implemented their system, took them three years to put it all together, and it's still not running correctly. So I think it will take more time if they do intend to implement it. The initiative process uh, in California requires um, the requisite number of signatures, which in this case is around 365,000 to be gathered within 90 days of the governor's signature. And so we have started the drive. I can tell you the drive is going much better than expected, uh, that there's opposition both on the law enforcement side of this to civil rights groups, to others, people within the industry, et cetera. So, you know, we're getting a good bounce just because the public appears to be on the side that this is, you know, regardless of whether you want bail reform or what bail reform should look like, uh, that this is not the answer. So. November 26th is the deadline. If we get the signatures, that will uh, stall the law, keep it from becoming law, and it will be placed uh, before the voters on the November 2020 ballot. Okay, so I'm not sure I've seen anybody petitioning with that. So are there certain population areas that you're concentrating on garnering those signatures for the petition? Yeah, it has to be statewide, so we have right. to get a certain number within each county. Okay. And I don't, 
You know, it's a combination of volunteers and professional signature gatherers at this point. And I'm not sure, familiar with which counties, what the locations are, and that sort of thing. I sort of have to give anybody involved with public policy now, and I mean all of us, that it, it, there is so much drama on the national leadership level that it's sort of, you know, there's only so much bandwidth, so much vigor that we can all give to all things public policy related. And so that you're able to get this during a midterm election season, put this together, it, it's, it's credit to the sophistication of the people that hopefully that are signing the petition as well as the, the grassroots effort to, to keep moving those out there in each county. Yeah, I hope so, and it's just troubling times right now, and I just wish we could have a more realistic conversation about public policy, and, you know, we talk about the disparities in the criminal justice system, and we know that if we don't change the inputs, you know, we can reform only to a certain point, and we've got to have real solutions, and right now, those appear to not be at our fingertips, unfortunately. Well, let's let's peel some back, though, with the, the public policy and uh, implications. You were saying about New Jersey, it's three years now in the making of their law, uh, voted on, but what is not running correctly, according to what your your estimation was? Well, there's really two things. One is the pretrial alternatives that judges would have yes. to put people on supervision in lieu of locking them up did not develop fully, meaning that the ankle monitors aren't there, meaning that the sort of e-carceration as a alternative to regular incarceration didn't happen. And that brings up problem number two, that the number of people they're detaining has continued to increase. And so while the goal was to decarcerate, the actual uh, numbers are proving that over time, just like we've seen in the federal system, that they're just going to continue to lock people up because judges will pick jail if they don't have bail in the mix. And that's what we're seeing. And so you've got prosecutors filing motions in 52 percent of all cases to detain, uh, which is which would be an astounding number if they were actually able to win that many. So who's doing the best fiscal impact of the incarceration versus non-incarceration of pre-trial detainees? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think people people tend to distort the numbers on both sides. I think people that are pro-reform say we get people out, they use the per-average daily cost numbers, and there's just, I don't know, there's very little... Um, there's very little real research done. I think the, the, the best research that I've seen just from a 38,000 global foot view yes. is that prevention programs in criminal justice system deliver the highest rate of return of anything we can do, uh, which is not to say that the people in the system are too far gone, but it is to say that we know what leads to these problems, and we have the ability to get a 15 to 16 to $1 return, for example, by sending kids to preschool, but we choose not to do it. And so... Um, to me, that's that's the true answer, and maybe that's just a hardened person who's lived in the criminal justice system, grew up in a police family, have had friends and family members killed in the line of duty, that sort of thing. But to me, that's that's where the real opportunity is. Well, a part of our sort of criminal justice psyche in the United States, not only I'm thinking part of the prevention of crime might also be rethinking the incarceration model of instead of emphasizing punitive measures but more rehabilitative, that would be in a way of preventing a later crime with rehabilitation. Is that part of the Bail Coalition's, also the charter there, is to look at rethinking this culture of detention to, away from punitive measures to rehabilitative measures? 
Yeah, for me, it's really, and I think um, research that I've seen, Professor Robert Wirth down at Rice University, it's this idea of the risk responsivity principle that started in the 70s, this idea that we're just going to ratchet you over your lifetime, even if you continue to commit the same crime over and over and pay your dues, that we're just going to keep ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting it up and making it more severe and you're more risky, which leads to more prison, more supervision by the state. And I think that's really what's driven this problem is that there's no remorse. There's no way for someone to, quote, pay their debt to society anymore. It's you get a criminal scarlet letter, you're a bad person, and you're not savable. And that's not only anti-Christian, it's un-American, and it's something that we think is wrong. And if the problem can be solved to where we don't have people to bail out of jail, then we'll happily go away. So we're, we're sort of talking in generalities. Are there any states that have the model kind of uh, pre-trial measures in place? Give, let, if there isn't an existing one, then give us your, like, your, your model, your dream sort of program for this. Well, I've, I've seen some states that do a pretty good job, and Connecticut always comes to mind. Okay. How um, do they do it? Their total rate of incarceration is 5% wow. uh, pre-trial. They have a mix of release options, so that defendants have all kinds of different options, and, and it's not just relying on bail. Uh, bail, whether they can get pre-trial release, widespread um, use of recognizance bonds, and then the other thing is they have good due process. You know, defendants get it in front of judges quickly. There's no delays, and that's what all this civil rights litigation primarily has been about, right. which is bail imposed, you don't get to talk to a judge for two weeks. And or longer. Wrong. And, you know, we just saw that in Dallas, um, their system, misdemeanor defendants couldn't, you know, it was four to eight days, and felonies up to two weeks to make a bail argument, and, you know, that can't happen in 2018. Yeah, that does sound pretty dark ages. And so that's Connecticut on the informed, the more enlightened model, and uh, Texas not so. That um, is there, let's say you are given from whole cloth an opportunity to develop a program. What would it look like? Well, I would get rid of the idea that we're going to have any big impact in a pretrial space, quote unquote, because the time periods are so short, right? We know that these cases resolve quickly and they need to be resolved more quickly. So if I was designing the bail system, I would have two things, bail or release. Uh, and then, of course, preventative detention would be limited, like it is in most states, to just capital cases. And that would be it. Uh, we wouldn't have all this other stuff in the middle, because I don't think it works. I don't think it makes the public safe. I think, you know, if somebody's going to be released for 30 days of a misdemeanor, what difference does it make if they go on this probation, that, which ends, and then they get a new probation? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's the way I would do it, is just go back to the pure way that the Constitution and bail system was intended and get, put all this other stuff aside, because we're not going to... You know, fix racial disparities, blah, 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 during this space. It's not going to happen. It's all the arrest process that drives the disparity in the system. Well, we can put out there in front of us that disparities can be a part of our ongoing kind of societal shared goal and that kind. I, I wouldn't want to sidetrack that too much. So where do you think, Jeff Clayton, is the, in terms of just looking at where California is going with this, um, where where do you think realistically this is all going to end up? You know, I wish I could tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think the apple cart has been upset in such a severe way, and I think the heart of this law is completely unconstitutional. So I think where, where it inevitably will lead everybody on all sides of this issue is you know, maybe we all need to get together under a roof that doesn't have a dome over it 
and talk about what would be a better system because it seems like when we go into a building with a dome over the roof of it uh, we don't do a very good job and maybe that's the answer is that everybody who cares about this issue needs to come together and, and come up with some reasonable compromise that i think can move the dial in the direction that helps everybody which i think is still a possibility what about some of these laity and um, clerical organizations that are interested in in social justice. So out of out of a capital legislative building and into uh, places of worship, is there, um, I mean, there's so many in that sort of, we'll call it a, a religious coalition versus the Baal coalition, that is there some ripe opportunity to advance this where they're already used to taking up these social services and all? I think so, and I think the real... Thing, the real reason this legislation is evil is because of preventative detention. I mean, the main opponent of preventative detention, because nobody thought it was constitutional, by the way, until the federal government passed it in 1984, and nobody thought it was constitutional during that time period until the U.S. Supreme Court said that it was, but the main dissent, you know, at the urging of the ACLU was Justice Thurgood Marshall, who said that the, to have preventative detention is, is un-American, uh, is wrong, and that Governments around the world label people as dangerous and hold them in trials that may never come. And that there's men, women, and children around the world locked up for a simple reason that the government says they're dangerous. And that's wrong. And that's the wrong system. And we can all argue that bail could be excessive, inexcessive, all that sort of thing. But if you are a member of a community and the government is abusing a member of your community, the last thing you want is preventative detention because you have no opportunity to go in and bail that person out. And that's really, truly the only way that the community could fight back. And I, the other thing I tell people is, yes. you know, the, the federal government, Donald Trump has the power of preventative detention right now. Are you comfortable with that? And, and most people say they're not. And would you be comfortable, you know, living in a community that has different politics than you with them just the power to label you as dangerous? And you, we could see all these cases, like the Freddie Gray case, the officers, all this sort of thing. You know, any time there's a big community outrage that will just lock that person up. And that's not, that's not America. And I think that's that's the most evil part of this bill. And all those twelve-year-olds that were previously charged. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in front you know, of that, it's not convicted either. That's no. the thing that really bothers me. Right, that's it's just broad that you swath. were arrested. At, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, that's just that's not fair. And with profiling, that ups the ante with that possibility. Right, and then we have the pred poll, the police, you know, computers algorithms to tell the police where to go. Well, where are they going to go? They're going to go where the, they've previously gone, and it, the cycle is going to repeat itself. And that's just, I don't know. It's and, just, it's really frustrating. And algorithms, once established, and then they, they sort of re get reinforced, and it becomes a more intensified model. So it's, that, I, that's where I think that could be a, a very pernicious sort of codified law. Mm. Yeah, well, I think so. And I think the, the way I explain algorithms is you're taking a picture of the past, and you're locking us into it. Right because that's where you get the data is from the past. Well, I want to thank you, Jeffrey Clayton, for being on Ask a Leader today. Absolutely. It was thank a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. My guest was Jeffrey Clayton, Executive Director of the American Bail Coalition, here talking with us today about the recently passed California law, SB 10, dealing with the state's bail bond system, be watching for the petition drive up until November 27th, where constituents of California, uh, registered voters, will have an opportunity to weigh in with rethinking some of that model. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. Bye.
Thank you for staying tuned. This beautiful track is the very young and accomplished Nadine Sierra, and that is the Violobos aria that she's just performed. Thank you for checking back in with us. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Connor Everts, Executive Director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus. As a facilitator for the caucus, Connor's other roles include co-chairing Desal Response Group. He's also chair of the Public Officials for Water and Environmental Reform, POWER is the acronym, get it, as well as other organizations. Connor was elected to the Casitas Municipal Water District and was president of the Ojai Basin Management Groundwater Agency. He convened the California Urban Water Conservation Council as well as the state task forces on total maximum daily loads, desalination, and the State Water Resources Control Board stakeholder process, and most recently serves on the Department of Public Health Direct Potable Use Advisory Group. His cherished undertaking was as the elder advisor helping remove dams on the streams where he caught his own fish back in the day. And with the heft of all these undertakings, Connor convenes monthly the Water Dialogues at the Department of Water and Power. The first time I get to meet him is going to be one of those tomorrow. But I just want to step back. Connor's career path, it reads like a really, a very special odyssey of sorts. After dabbling in college, he went on to, he wrote TV scripts, then on to a, a familial back to the land project resulting in his book entitled Living the Good Life. He started the Claremont New Hampshire Energy Project and worked on various energy and water programs which dealt with drought conditions based on models from record dry periods in California and Oregon. He went on to work at the uh, Housing and Urban Development HUD in uh, D.C., replicating his local water and energy programs on a broader scale. He eventually returned to California, as I was talking about earlier in his earlier work, working for engineering firms and municipalities as he settled in Ojai and dabbled in law school and tacked on with the droughts in California. So he's on the college circuit and is a well-connected water policy whisperer. He'll take us out of the box to rethink how water could be managed he comes to us, I think, today from Los Angeles, Connor? Yes, I'm Santa Monica. That's and correct, Claudia. He comes to us today yeah. from Santa Monica. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Connor. Thank you, Claudia. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I do so myself. Well, I, I must say, just still, it's very fresh, the experience of the Global Climate Action Summit. Well, and Jane Goodall talked about making the case for cutting back on meat consumption. She reminds us, and I quote her, we can live without fossil fuel, we cannot live without water. And Peter Gleek, president of the Pacific Institute, put it right there, it's short four years ago, the current drought opens the door to a real conversation about fundamental changes in California water policy. So, Connor, at this at this time, four short years after that pronouncement, how ready are we for another drought, the inevitable next drought, and a more severe drought, no less? Well, actually, Claudia, I don't even like the term drought anymore because okay. that assumes that it goes away. And, and what we found, especially with climate change, we're on more extreme cycles of dry and wet. 
So in the last five years, we've gone from our driest to our wettest um, within a short period of time. And we calculate on an assumption of a baseline um, that doesn't really exist anymore. So I think we always have to be planning as if we're in drought, and we are in not a desert, as some people like to say, but the semi-arid uh, Mediterranean climate, which is typically very dry for nine or ten months. And then there's a short period when we get rains. And having grown up in Southern California, I remember earlier in the season rains, now they seem to come later, and there seems to be long times between a rain, and then it seems to rain all at once. So we get more flooding or runoff and less capture. So we have to do everything we can to capture water um, locally. And I, I think that's an approach that every time we go through a public relations kind of program around drought, um, everyone improves what they're doing, whether it's landscape or uh, appliances from washing machines to toilets to shower heads. And over time, with increased population, we've used first a flat amount of water since 1978 statewide and now less water. Um, and this is probably the first time with a hotter, drier climate as we've experienced that our water usage is kind of ticking up. But each time we go through these cycles, we've improved. And we usually don't um, ever go back up to the level we've been in the past. And we, we can see that um, in legislation that's pushing us to go even further with what's called conservation, but I would say it's far more than that far as a more. response. So, yeah, let's, let's have you hack uh, as many of the conventional approaches. This is, our, this is our opportunity to do it for people to really think way out of these conventions because I think the, the institutional managers are, I, I'm, I'm going to say, it, are doing us a bit of a disservice in the conventions that they're really uh, very wedded to. So, uh, but to start... You were saying uh, that uh, there's been public relations efforts to raise our attention, to change our devices. So information goes a long way about raising consumer awareness. So how about where's the dog and pony show to talk about <laughs> the energy water nexus that's pretty rich right in this water usage? Yeah, so that, uh, I, having worked in both fields. Exactly. Um, that's why you're and honest. They've often been separate, both between energy and, and water. Um, there's a key element that we use about 19% of the state's energy in both uh, moving and treating water. Um, so it's a, a key link that we also uh, acknowledge for a lot of Southern California, water gets pumped over the Tehachapi Mountains when you go through the grapevine. Um, often to the distance, there's some huge pumps and anything we can do to offset that has real value. Um, also, in the treatment of water and wastewater, there's a lot of energy embedded as well. So as climate change is impacting our snowmelt and our water supply, uh, we want to reduce energy at the same time. I will give credit to a lot of communities and water districts uh, that continue on the programs um, and that haven't allowed you know, the temporary mandatory conservation to come and go right um there are communities that realize that this is a permanent thing and the incentives and everything else have to be in place so we can not just react but really plan into the future as dr glick said well and dr peter glick always does an excellent job now um 
retired, but still um, on blogs and emeritus yes. for the Pacific Institute and in tweeting. Oakland. Um, I would highly recommend any, any of their work in terms of research. But we're really, every time we go dry, it's a window on the future. And um, anyone who's had an opportunity to see pictures of the Colorado River and 18 out of 20 years of, of what some would call drought, the two record wet years in between, hasn't been enough to offset the draining of that river and those reservoirs. So that's part of the public relations is for, I guess, it, it, I think it got missed, Connor, that the, the groundwater depletion, that's that sort of, it's so out of our, off our radars, it's such an abstraction, but there was a missed opportunity to, to really explain in the PR that the groundwater depletion is, is grave and it takes so long in any way to recharge any of that source. That's right, but at the same time, um, Orange County is a good example on the north part of the county where they've been taking recycling wastewater, treating it multiple times, including with um, reverse osmosis filters and UV light, and then recharging their groundwater as a way of maintaining groundwater locally. What we don't have statewide and we're just beginning to move forward on very slowly, is actually monitoring and metering um, groundwater. And uh, years ago in the 90s when I was um, president of the Ojai Basin Groundwater Agency, one of only seven at the time in the state, people don't like change. Um, Mark Twain's quote Uh-oh. is well known about whiskey and, and, and water, but the what real one that he says that applies to groundwater is I like progress but not change. So the farmers in town resisted the idea of just metering. There was no charge. We just wanted to see the levels of the groundwater. Um, Windows in my uh, house and car were broken. I brought in a facilitator who did a great job. Uh, We bulk purchased meters. Uh, We allowed people to monitor based on electrical usage because people often have to drop their pumps lower and lower as the groundwater levels drop. And we were able to uh, measure our groundwater, which needs to be done statewide. In the midst of the drought, we did pass a statewide legislation, uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which I sit on one of those small agencies, and there's hundreds of them across the state. But the process for that is um, out to 2040 for full implementation. Uh, Meanwhile, we've only been able to monitor our groundwater in the worst areas that are overtapped in the southern San Joaquin Valley with big agriculture with satellites where we've seen it drop so much. You know, I'm, I'm a very tall person, but I could reach the top of utility poles in some places because of the subsidence. Um, canals are dropping. The freeway is dropping. The five, the interstate, because uh, we're overtapping groundwater. And once it goes down to a certain level, it doesn't come back up. So I, and also that water is key is that it doesn't evaporate the way that uh, reservoirs behind dams do. So anything we can do to improve our management of groundwater um, brings me to the last important myth or point is that we don't have a shortage or a crisis in California. It's actually how we manage that water. Exactly. And that was, that was a statement that Dorothy Green, uh, one of my mentors, put in her book, Um, called Avoiding Crisis, Managing California's Water. All right. I'll put that in the summary. Everybody can refer back to that book. Well, why, Connor, do you think that the California Energy Commission 
isn't funding solutions that work on the energy water nexus? <laughs> I, I think, unfortunately, the uh, Energy Commission, a statewide agency uh, that has oversight on power plants and renewable energy, and the State Department of Water Resources, which deals with the reservoirs, the state reservoirs and the aqueducts, and then the third agency would be the State Water Resources Control Board, uh, which deals with water rights and now is beginning to look into conservation, recycled water, and other elements. And then for the 20% of, of water that is privately owned, we call them investor-owned um, utilities or IOUs, they go through the Public Utilities Commission. So you have four agencies who often don't talk to each other. They have the last 10 years begun programs where they integrate those programs, but we still don't fund on an equal level and respect the level that water and energy have, as you said, a nexus. So with your water dialogues, though, are all, all those parties are there. Are they making progress a little? Well, they're not always at every meeting. They may be at meetings when we discuss one issue or, or another. Yeah, I think they are making progress, and I think you know, the other connection when we do go dry, these severe dry times, it has an impact on our hydroelectric power sure. as well. And I think the, you know, the, there's the cost of pumping and moving water with the increased prices of electricity are going to have a greater impact as well. So I think some agencies are looking at that. In Santa Monica, we're um, trying to get off imported water. And we have a sustainability program that looks at energy. So we've integrated the two. So we look at the impacts and the cost of both. And where can we get multiple benefits in investing in water programs? Um, but I, I think that's the direction a lot of communities are going to have to go. But when you have separate agencies or jurisdictions, how you get those to integrate and how you get the cities and counties uh, to play their part in that as well is a challenge. Well, that's where visionary leadership, I guess, uh, we can think about that, where we find it with our election cycle. But I'm not sure. We just heard from the, the previous interview is that putting complex solutions and solving them under a dome, implicating legislative processes, it's, it's where not enough inroads are made. Well, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Connor Everts, Executive Director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance, facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus, and he leads the Water Dialogues monthly at the Department of Water and Power. And uh, I, actually, actually, the Metropolitan Water District Met at Union C Station downtown. MWD. Uh, Why? Yeah. You know, I my alphabets. <laughs> Pardon that. So, so it's a lightning round to cover some of the projects for, for your straight-on critical thinking. I think I want because of it. Well, we've got the. In, in a few short strokes, what can you say to the Proposition 3, the Water Infrastructure and Watershed Conservation Bond Initiative on this November 6th midterm election ballot? Yeah, it's a mouthful. It's uh, filled with the buzzwords that we have found um, to respond. So uh, we've just passed a $4.1 billion water and parks bond, uh, right. number 68, in, on the June ballot. Uh, a few years ago, we had Prop 1, which was $7.8 billion, and now we're asking for another $8.9 billion in bond spending. And to be clear, um, the bonds are really a loan against the general fund, so they're paid back 
uh, over 40 years, and we will be paying $430 million a year against education and health and other programs. So th- this one is, a, a, I say it's a huge uh, a sub- upside-down Christmas tree laden with ornaments and baubles for everybody. So there are a lot of good things in it, but really not enough directed funds to solve any of these problems. This one did not go through the legislature, so um, it doesn't go back to them for oversight. Um, and it's got, a, I think, too big a list to support at, the, at this time. And I don't think this is the best way to be funding these projects. I think the areas long-term in terms of infrastructures, which includes uh, dams and canals and aqueducts, um, we've always had a policy in the state of the beneficiary pays. So those that actually um, get a benefit from it directly pay in to the project, sometimes on a loan basis with the federal government. And now we're changing that with this bond. And so there's some real policy issues around it as well. Often people don't look beyond the title of the bond, but we'll see this time if there are limits on the spending. And obviously there are other bonds on the ballot as well. And I I really think that uh, water agencies in particular that have revenue from selling water need to invest more of their own money at a higher percentage in conservation stormwater, and other programs that benefit their ratepayers. So I'm going to have you quickly uh, take up the the Poseidon project, the desalinization project in Hunting Beach. It's had some real momentum uh, with the Carlsbad project, which I just, in preparing for this, I realized it's the largest desalinization plant in the Western Hemisphere. And the, the big profiles around the political spectrum are supporting the Poseidon Project and recently approved a Monterey Peninsula plant. So what are the costs and benefits in Orange County environmentally, financially for ratepayers and local governments with the Poseidon Project? In a short order, because we've got to go on, we've got to get to some other really unconventional fixes. I will make sure everybody has built up. All right, so so very quickly, because I've been working on this for a long time. Yes, you have. And coming down to Huntington Beach and working in Monterey and across the state, we had 29 projects at one time. Um, Only one large-scale plant was built. I don't know if it's uh, necessarily a good thing to say that it's the largest in the Western Hemisphere. Um, It's had a series of challenges in terms of violations and... It's been down for periods of time. We know when red tides come in, we have, we'll have another series of problems. But the real question about water, and we do it on the energy side, is how do we prioritize these projects? And if you were to prioritize desalination because of the cost, the amount of energy, the small amount of water you get out of it, desalination would drop to the bottom of the list. And you'd be doing things like more conservation, reclamation, stormwater, other programs first. So the, one, the plant in Monterey is very small and uh, very different in that it uses what they call beach wells to eliminate the impact on sea life and the intake. Okay. So I, I don't think Poseidon makes um, sense now. I think what does make sense um, for that project and one in the Santa Monica Bay called West Basin is to go to direct potable reuse and expand recycled water and then think about doing desal maybe in 20 or 30 years, which is where Los Angeles is. Okay, so this gives me an opportunity to raise, and I, I guess full disclosure is I may be involved professionally in the solution I want to bring up, so it's a, that's a bit of a disclaimer there, but there's the closed-loop economy 
and um, energy and water. Could you talk about, I mean, you already mentioned about how the institutional thinking with so many different domains and agencies and purviews, it's it's very well codified, the, the institutional thinking. What will it take to integrate a closed loop economy to really contain and uh, you make full use on a much less expensive basis the water resources we need? So what it'll really take is when we get to the, uh, down to the part of a zero discharge into rivers, streams, creeks, which in you know, the L.A. River ends up being a concrete channel and therefore into the ocean. So places that respect the marine environment, like the Monterey area, have a zero discharge. And if you have a zero discharge, then you're talking about running a very efficient system like they do in Europe and Asia, which you're talking about industrial use of water that's fully treated and reused over and over again. So no water is leaving. On a larger scale, we are treating and embedded with energy wastewater to the amount that we almost import from the Bay Delta, and we dump it back in the ocean after we've treated it. So full reuse and not discharging water is somewhere we've been talking and fighting about for about 30 years, but until we realize the full value that water is a finite resource and we can't waste any of it, we're still not going to make those really efficient decisions we should be making, both for the short term and the long term. And that's why some businesses... Silicon Valley and other areas are beginning to make those changes, realizing, one, the water is precious, and two, that anything that is wasted and dumped and not recaptured uh, doesn't make sense. Well, Connor, it seemed like a really opportune setting at the the San Francisco-based, the the Global Climate Action Summit two weeks ago. could have taken up some of this more forward thinking, but I... I'm sorry to say that that opportunity was lost in that, that in not bringing that up. There were a few, there there were many many different ways, but and so in a and more efficient containment and use and handling of of the the water, like you were saying, full you know re, full reuse there. That uh, that also it helps with raising the resiliency of the water supply. No, not only the, the resiliency, which which we need to make a permanent commitment to, but also reduces the pollution into creeks, streams, and ultimately the ocean. And Southern California is about the ocean and, and recreation and the quality of life we have because of that, and we should treat it that way as well. Okay. So you're an amazing background to be able to sort of bridge the conventional and the unconventional, the electric and the water are there more lessons? What, what lessons do you think we're, we could take advantage of right now as the water supply and the quality are affected directly by hazards like the wildfires, the extreme rain, the hurricanes? What, what can we roll out right now and take full advantage of those, those hazards to demonstrate how we could be rethinking and move into a closed-loop economy and management of water? Yeah, if we recognize that these are not just one-time events, but they're a, a series of impacts we were, we've been expecting with climate change, you know, we really have to plan for our driest day uh, plus fire rather than assume that we're going to be using ever more water. We really have to look at the impact of uh, wildfires 
I grew up in Southern California when they were pretty common, but not at the scale or the kinds of impacts we've had in the last few years, which are really um, amazing. If you track those, that also has an impact on water supply and our watersheds, those upper reaches. So the, the program has to not just think about water, but the impacts of all of the elements. And um, I was out this morning in yes. my community garden. We have a very early shredding detail where we're building compost. So building up the quality of the soil to retain water as well right. and capture water on site is something that we need to do. So there's a whole series of processes that we're aware of them. We have some examples, I think more in Southern California than Northern California, ironically. But I, see, I think wow. we're beginning to understand the value of water, and certainly people are. People are implementing their own gray water systems. They're capturing water. There's kind of an exciting thing that happens uh, as people's awareness increases about water. I think the bureaucracies and even water agencies take a while to catch up with that movement. Okay, and so people can follow you. What are the best ways so they can continue to put the pressure on the institutional response to the, it's not a creeping crisis, it's a, it's a little more, it's a little more dire. So where, what's the best ways to follow you? So we've just been through a huge, I would say a battle over uh, an infrastructure project and I've been focused on that. But I think the um, Environmental Water Caucus, okay. ewccalifornia.org, uh, has a lot of the information, including solutions that we're talking about. Um, and I think that's a good way to follow the work that we're doing. Okay. Um, I would also recommend some others, and we have links there to other groups like the Pacific Institute, Amigos de los Rios, the River Project. Um, there's a lot of organizations in Orange County, the Orange County Coast Keeper is um, one, of, one of a few that are doing not just challenging and fighting and ultimately having to sue on these issues, but putting forward real solutions that will help all of us. All right. Well, that, I'll keep those in the podcast summary so people can return to those. So, Connor, it's been such a pleasure. I'm really looking forward. I finally get to meet you tomorrow at the <laughs> Metropolitan Water District. My guest was Connor Everts, Executive Director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and facilitator of the Environmental Water Cost. Thanks for being on the show, Connor. Thank you so much, Claudia. Here we go. That was the show. I just want to make a few announcements at 3.30. Today at the Irvine City Council, we'll discuss the um, whether to move ahead with the study of the community choice energy and a big step to getting to the, the program launch in Orange County that would manage the rates locally and empower us to get more electricity from the local renewables. Then at around 5, the council will take up SB 54, the California Values Act. If you can recall all the drama that other municipalities in Southern California, especially Orange County visit, Irvine offers locals a ringside seat of the same. That's tonight, September 25th. Tonight, if you're listening uh, live right now, and it's approximately around, as I said, about 5 o'clock at the Irvine City Hall, 1 Civic Center Plaza. Wednesday is training day at the Orange County Communities for Responsible Development, OCORD. The Citizenship Fair will be held this Saturday at the Anaheim Convention Center. It's all in my interview with Jorge and Mosillo on the September 4th podcast posted. That was my wrap. 
Next week, I'll begin my electoral coverage with candidate and then Neil Kelly, Orange County Registrar of Voters. It's the ritual. We have elections. We talk to Neil. Talk with you next week. When the good things disappear, everything dies, and you ask yourself why. Two and a half, wanna laugh through the math. Winner of my discontent, freedom's gonna pay the